Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this episode of the podcast, my guest and I will be discussing the real health and well-being impacts of discrimination. So I have written about some of these issues in my diversity toolbox column in today's veterinary business. And we've touched on some of these issues in a related episode with Dr. Luana Nan from Purdue University about a year ago. But I really wanted to dive more deeply into the health and well-being impacts of discrimination and marginalization on populations. So to do that, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Sharina Owens to the show. Hi. Hello, how are you? I'm good. So now there's a lot of information out there on the cost of discrimination in the workplace. Um, In fact, a 2012 study, which I'm sure there's more updated information out there, but it's many different ways of kind of calculating what these costs are in the workplace. But that study found that workplace discrimination costs businesses about $64 billion a year in a variety of ways, not limited to, but in certainly includes recruiting, retention, litigation, turnover, job performance, productivity, morale, and marketing. Marketing being when things go viral, because that happens now, and then you need to bring in somebody to kind of help you fix it. But that's really on the business side. And, And it really sidesteps kind of what we should be also talking about, which is the cost to the individual who is being subjected um, to these awful behaviors of discrimination and marginalization in any number of ways. So we know that there's an economic cost for these individuals as well. But the reality is that the costs are really compounded by the costs outside of the workplace, just kind of living your life, walking around, just being. And those are really real costs to folks as well. Today's conversation is really going to focus on those aspects of costs related specifically to health and well-being. So with that... I am, as I mentioned, I'm so excited to chat with Sharina, who's at Michigan State, and I'm going to give her, as is our custom, an opportunity to introduce herself. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so great being here. A short introduction. I am uh, currently the embedded psychologist at Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine, And I've been here at the university for three years. And I came to the university specifically to the veterinary medical students uh, after 25 or so years practicing a range of clinical psychology skills. I've worked in forensic settings where I provided treatment to those who have been adjudicated incompetent to stand trial um, or not guilty by reason of insanity, providing evaluations to the government. In that work, obviously, I worked with many marginalized groups, very diverse populations with respect to race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, the diversity of the group was large. Then I've also worked in private practice settings where in addition to clinical services, I provide a psychoeducation to re-entering citizens with another marginalized group of people. So either sex offenders, veterans, victims of human sex trafficking, other forms of human trafficking. I like to tease my students when they come in and they um, assume that I'm their age. It's like, no, I've been practicing longer than you are old. (laughs) Um, But it really, all of that has informed my work currently in veterinary medical education in terms of um, what can happen, what does happen, when a, a person cannot embrace their identity. Mm, all right. Well, why don't we dive right on in then? So that setup means what? Does that does discrimination and marginalization impact health and well-being? Certainly. And I did <laughs> notice, Dr. Greenhill, that you used the term health and well-being. Yeah. 
And, um, and we know that mental health is one of the critical pieces that we want to address. But yes, marginalization, discrimination, stigmas um, certainly impact our general health as well as our mental health and well-being. And if it's okay with you, uh, Dr. Greenhill, I'd like to look at some definitions before we move on. I, I took some notes here and I want for the listeners and viewers to have the benefit of, of understanding what we're talking about when we say marginalization. Yeah. Um, marginalization being the process of pushing a group to the side, um, placing them in a, in a position where they have limited access to the resources they need to achieve human goals. You know, the goals that we all have for uh, sustenance, for housing, for healthcare. This marginalization comes as a result of stigmas, you know, negative marks mm-hmm. on individual or group. And then it perpetuates it as well. So I did want to talk a little bit about marginalization and its results of producing minimal access to institutional means um, for education, housing, et cetera. Then you also use the term, um, one of us brought up stigma earlier. We know that that, uh, and I think we both may have mentioned that that is a, a, a mark as well of disgrace or um, some negative characterization of who someone is that can lead to rejection. So back to the question of does discrimination and marginalization affect health? Yes, we have studies for many years about the effect of marginalization on life expectancy, infant mortality, so those general health issues that as a result of marginalization, that individuals and groups have shorter life expectancies. And we have also, from the general health to more specific things, you mentioned, I think the term well-being. Yeah. And I define that, you know, well-being. What does well-being mean? The state of feeling comfortable, the state of feeling secure, you know, the state of feeling content or okay. And we do know that as a result of, of marginalization and all of what it encompasses that individuals uh, are compromised in their well-being with depression, anxiety, fear, sensitivities that affect their ability to live the life that each individual and group should be able to live. Yeah. So you've kind of touched on a number of different things. So when we talk about these groups that are maybe on the margins, um, yes. maybe experiencing stigma, and then those individuals who are just really grinding it out in openly hostile situations that are discriminatory, just for yes. lack of, they're just, yes. you know, discriminatory. So what are those, you know, and all of those, of course, are stressors, but but what are some of those kind of stressors that are unique to these populations? Why are they so much more at risk aside from all of these things? Like what is, what's happening here? Wow. Whoa. <laughs> That's good. Easy softball question. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff because I think of both, uh, when you were talking, I was thinking of what happens, uh, mm. it, it, how does it manifest? What does it look like? when there is discrimination. And, and and then I also thought about what are the risk factors of those that are being discriminated against? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to start with a list of ways in which marginalization manifests. So okay. what it looks yeah, like. What does it look like? Okay, derogatory language. Assuming one's accomplishments is not due to merit or effort. Okay, uh, imagine that we'll get to what marginalization looks like in veterinary medical education, what it could look like. Yeah. And uh, so that one certainly stands out in mind. You know, how did yeah. you get to the program? Right. That a, a marginalized individual got in through some other means. You're other than only that. here because. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Let's not, yes. I'm turning around the language that, it, yes. Yeah. Here because, you know, you're a minority, whichever right. group that might be. Uh, expecting individuals to act a certain way based on stereotypes mm-hmm. uh, about uh, their identity, uh, denying academic or professional opportunities because of racism, sexism, ableism, uh, mm-hmm. which is not often talk, talked about. But there was a study done in Europe recently where they surveyed over 2,000 veterinary professionals and ableism did come out in yeah. her varying ability, physical ability. 
not providing equal access to certain resources based on membership, assuming preferred pronoun without asking, assuming sexual orientation without asking, overlooking, criticizing, um, or interfering with someone's cultural or religious practices or uh, traditions. And then, of course, the systemic and institutionalized barriers um, that we may see in the work environment or educational environment. So that's what it can look like in action. I can't say whether or not what, what comes first, but then in terms of the risk factors, we know that marginalized groups are more likely to be homeless, more likely to experience distrust, have to deal with inequality or limited access to all forms of care, not just health care, but religious care, spiritual care, and then limited access to the kind of information that will help them achieve their goals. So I think I may have gone around Ned's barn and got lost a little bit from your <laughs> question, <laughs> but redirect me if I missed no, one. I- I think that that all of the things that you've mentioned are are exactly what we were kind of talking about. And, and I think that it's helpful for people to understand kind of what they what they look like and what they sound like. Oh, you're only here because yada, yada, yada. Right. Or, for example, we know from our research here at AABMC that applicants who are from underrepresented backgrounds, racial and ethnic underrepresented backgrounds, have a higher level of distrust for pre-vet advisors, right? And so they're less likely to go to them. And so then they're less likely to maybe have some aspects of their, you know, they're not getting the coaching for their application that shows up and then it feeds potentially a stereotype that those individuals are not. And it just kind of compounds with each successive level of review, right? And so um, that's kind of what those risk factors look like. And then when they're coupled with, ah, well, we expect we don't expect them to be as you know <laughs> as as strong of an applicant or as competitive as an applicant as someone from this particular background and so so i think that those are different ways that that might show up specifically in veterinary medical education how it also might show up you know i i did a study some years ago on lgbt student experience and there were a number of of research participants who identified as lgbt somewhere on the on the gender identity spectrum and or sexuality spectrum they were interested in large animal but they there was kind of this dual piece happening right so they were really afraid of how folks would perceive them in those spaces. But there was also this kind of, I I have to kind of put on, on, if I presented more, say, femme or masculine than my gender identity, then I need to kind of figure out how to make those two things jive (laughs) so that I make everyone else in that space comfortable. Right. And that comes at a personal cost. Yes, right? it does. And so that comes at a personal cost. And so what do we know about kind of what those costs are? I mean, you know, I certainly I've given some presentations on just the, the health stuff. Like we know yes. that there's higher blood pressure. There's yes. greater likelihood of obesity because of our friend cortisol and, and, yes. it's, and its relationship to stress and all of those kinds of things. But kind of what does that look like in terms of general health and then more specifically mental health? Yes. In terms of for the general population and, and general health, and you, you've touched on some of those, you know, there is the an increase in the incidence of hypertension. For years, it was thought that hypertension in African-American communities was genetic. Mm-hmm. And um, in the past 10 years, there has been research, you know, with the proper controlling um, to control for the, uh, the variables necessary that no, it is directly related to ra- racism. And so you, you, you named some of those, and I had earlier mentioned in terms of as a community, uh, how it affects mortality and life expectancy. But um, as short of that, you mentioned diabetes and hypertension. Um, and then in, in the mental health realm, depression, anxiety, there has a, been a, a term coined in the past five or so years about post-traumatic slavery syndrome. Hmm. And that among people of color, specifically the African-American community, that we have a trauma effect that has not been recognized and honored because it didn't fit into the stereotypic, you know, it didn't meet criteria number one. 
where there was this sudden immediate threat of life, you know, or or well-being as opposed to, and not just specific to African-Americans, but groups that have been, uh, that have lived in war, Mm -hmm. the chronic, you know, threat, um, the, and then the indirect threats as, as well as the direct microaggressions, um, the, the specific incidents to an individual. Then we have looked at suicide, you know, in, yeah. in different groups. And because there are some inherent protective factors in some marginalized groups, we know um, that in people of color, that, that, you know, family systems, spirituality, and other things have been protective. Up until recently, we did not recognize the importance of looking at suicide. We know that in uh, non-binary youth, there's yeah. much more suicidal ideation than in the heterosexual straight mm-hmm. you know, teens. Cisgender, yeah. Yes, cisgender. And so all of those things are concerned, both the general health as well as the specific mental health, the confusion, the stress. I'm looking here um, at lists that I've acu- accumulated just with students that I have worked with, the sadness, the self-blame. Internalize self-hatred or devaluation based on the overt treatment towards specific individuals and groups. Fear, paranoia, isolation, which is a huge one. And that's a double whammy because we um, will often see marginalized individuals isolating themselves from the majority group. And then if we see them connecting with others like them, failing to realize that that is needed. Right. They may be isolating from the majority group, but the connection with those who identify in ways similar to them provides a protective, you know, mechanism. So when you asked about the impact of marginalization, was there any specific area that you were concerned about or that you've seen and want attention to draw attention to? Certainly. I mean, I think that that you've mentioned a number of different factors that um, some of the work that we've done here at AAVMC have revealed. It's really hard um, for folks to sometimes articulate (laughs) what they're experiencing. And then there's also this kind of, if you bring it up, we talked about this pre-production a little bit, kind of the gaslighting that happens. And gaslighting is, uh, you're kind of your, your, Blaming the 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 uh, the subject of the the person who is experiencing the discrimination and or marginalization for their own circumstances, right? And kind of turning it back on. Well, but why are you being so mean to me? You're being really um, you're upsetting me, and this is not good. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, these are things that I think people don't appreciate as compounded experiences that really contribute to not feeling like you're in a space that wants you there. Yes, that is accepting to you. When you talked about the gaslighting, I thought of the paradigm between the agent of discrimination yeah. or the agent of, of you know, hostility or, or marginalization, speaking and conducting themselves in a way to the target as if the target is targeting themselves, as if the target yeah. is, is causing, you know, the problem. Self-harm. Self-harm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, those are things that are, you know, I think that, that we see. And, but I think that what is challenging for folks kind of teasing out some of this um, topic is that unless you are aware, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. don't see it. Um, and if and sometimes if it's not happening to you, and I don't just mean in terms of color or gender or or sexuality or gender identity, because some of those things may or may not be more visible, but there's certainly lots of other populations that are less visible that that we're just kind of all kind of walking <laughs> walking around yeah. with a lot of paper cuts. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. And I think, though, like you said, if we take it upon ourselves to become informed, and I know that we'll probably get to a segment later on about what we can do, but in terms of identifying those that may not be obvious, as well as those that, um, you know, we can clearly recognize as being a part of groups that have been marginalized um, historically, I made a list for what I've seen in the education 
environment. We talked about the reluctance to interact with others, the financial difficulties. We've had students who were living in their cars. Um, This happened to be a student with multiple, there were many intersecting identities within this one student, but um, limited access to academic spaces or limitations accessing academic spaces, discomfort in participating in the classroom. You know, they think I'm different. They think I'm odd. They think I'm crazy. And if I say something, they will know. Fear that one's actions may confirm an existing stereotype related to what I was just saying. Poor academic performance on exams or assignments due to negative impacts on concentration and well-being. One controversial topic um, related to how difficulties, how marginalization affects concentration and sense of well-being and therefore impacts academic performance when we look at some of the standardized tests. And that's the controversial issue many veterinary schools are talking about now, whether to you know, use the GRE or not to use the GRE. I have a funny story about my GRE experience, if you'd like to hear that. Yeah. Uh, and how it had no direct, no impact at all on my success. Well, let me just, I, I, I can't resist. So yeah. my, my quantitatives on my GRE were as such that um, the head of one of the programs I was applying to stated that I needed to go back and take junior high school algebra. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so long story short, using some advocacy that we really need to, you know, teach you know, students to, to, to engage in. I advocated for myself. I was admitted into the program. I was the top performer in the statistics, uh, as, uh, <laughs> in my statistical program and then completed my PhD with distinction, but they didn't want to let me in based on my right. quantitative score on my GRE. There you go. Well, you know what? I, I will tell you this too. I just was doing a workshop with an institution recently and some colleagues and I disclosed during the course of that workshop that we specifically looked at graduate schools that did not require the GRE because I was like, I've been out of school for a couple of years, for more than a couple. But but I was like, I'm not doing that. Why? I don't need to do that. Like I have a body of work that shows that I'm more than capable of doing this. And you know, no, I'm not doing that. And so thinking about even the the testing and stereotype threat means that um, there's a recruiting aspect that I don't think that some institutions really appreciate that it's not just that it's not predictive, it's not this, it's not that, but there are a group of individuals who are just unwilling to submit themselves to what we know potentially is a problematic um, evaluative tool. So that's uh, that's that that's good stuff. You're much more adverse. I'm I, I'm a novice, and you've done the research, and you have uh, the evidence that you speak to. Um, and this is some good stuff. Thank you. I, I so appreciate yeah. you to be part of this discussion. Absolutely. So now you mentioned suicide a, a little while ago, and we do know that veterinarians and, and veterinary students, folks in the profession, um, seem to be a, at a higher risk um, of suicide ideation than the general population. We've also kind of talked about some aspects of kind of protective, you know, anti-risk stuff that's happening in some um populations that are experiencing discrimination and marginalization. But when we think about all of these things together and we think about intersectionality, which means that, you know, that many of us are walking around with multiple identities and several of those identities within us may be experiencing these things at different times um, in compounded ways. So... Are our individuals who are from underrepresented and historically um, marginalized populations at greater risk of suicide ideation? That's a good question. There isn't a lot of research, nor are there a lot of instruments that allow us to look at the impact on intersectionality on mental health and or suicide. Should we be concerned? Yes. That would be, you know, um, <laughs> that's a short answer. <laughs> yes, 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 be concerned. Do we know that intersectionality in and of itself increases risk? Yes, we do know that. But it, can do we have the, the the tools to measure, for instance, the synergistic impact of, say, gender and ethnicity on depression? Mm-hmm. We aren't there yet, but yes, we should be concerned. Yes, with marginalization, we do have increased 
depression and anxiety. And I, I mentioned to you some of the other um, effects of uh, marginalization. And then with specific to the veterinary medical uh, community, the research to date suggests, yes, we should be concerned. In the one study that I mentioned to you, over 24% of them had witnessed or experienced discrimination. And we do know that if you have a biological predisposition to anxiety or depression, that stressors will cause the manifestation. In the old days, we called it the diastasis stress model. And so given that uh, in the veterinary community, there has been research suggesting that there is more suicidal ideation, that there is more completed suicide in some groups within the veterinary community, that the impact of marginalization and intersectionality would make them more vulnerable and increase mm-hmm. the likelihood. So should we be concerned? Yes. Is the emerge is the data suggesting that there's reason for this concern? Absolutely. I think much more attention. So many of us wonder, well, why are these marches important? Or why should I, you know, identify my pronouns or, you know, um, and not make assumptions about those of others? It makes a difference. Again, we're talking about a predisposition that was mm-hmm. certain is going to cause the manifestation of a problem. And to pretend like that that these challenges and that this phenomenon doesn't exist, which is a comfortable place for many people, silence is not just silence. You know, there's a phrase that that silence can be deadly. There, Mm -hmm. there, there, There are consequences to us continuing to ignore the fact that veterinary medical education the veterinary community needs special attention with respect to wellness. And it's not just physical wellness, but we're talking about spiritual wellness, financial wellness, social wellness. Mm-hmm. And then certainly individuals, as you said, who have been a part of historically and currently yeah. uh, current uh, groups that are discriminated against. We need to take action we are not serving ourselves well as a veterinary community. We're not serving our students well or adequately to ignore these things and say, well, I don't have time to explore, you know, gender identity and what that means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, and again, it's, I will say, um, disclaimer, it's probably easier for the two of us to kind of say, well, you know, the profession needs to do all this stuff but we're part of the profession too. But I think that it, it has to be a part of that lifelong learning. And even if, yes. you know, that this that, that we all advocate in veterinary medical education, that it's not just about lifelong learning, about practice, but really about people as well. So I've got a couple of questions before we get to the, what can you do and, and what what's really important. I wanted to ask, because I think that folks kind of think, oh, you know, there's like discrimination looks like. Uh-huh. <laughs> For those of you listening, I'm like, this is a small impact versus, you know, um, a microaggression is a really tiny impact versus I called you something really awful. <laughs> it's a big overt impact. Is there really a difference, a cumulative difference between the macro and micro events that really underpin kind of discrimination and marginalization? And is there a difference between microaggressions and macroaggressions? That's an easy question. <laughs> there, there is, as you talked about, one having more to do with indivi- an individual's actions toward another individual. Right. And then we also have, as we alluded to earlier, even internalized uh, views that are a part of microaggression, how we speak and value our, speak about ourselves and value ourselves. And then the macro, the more institutionalized mm-hmm. uh, practices uh, um, that limit the resources and access to resources of various groups. So yes, there's the macro and the micro, the difference. Now, in terms of the impact, first, I will say, of course, you and I both as, as PhD researchers, you currently and me historically, mm-hmm. that I haven't seen a ranking in terms of the, you know, how deleterious the force is or the impact is of right. micro versus macro. And for fear that, as you suggested, that if we t- if we say that macroaggressions, that institutionalized discrimination is more impactful than microaggressions, 
then we let the micros off the hook. That's right. Then as long as I'm saying and doing the right things, then I'm good. As opposed to, okay, I might be saying and doing the right things, but then taking it to the next level, am I doing something to influence those who aren't saying and doing the right things? And am I being a, am I playing a role in social justice issues that can affect policy and eliminate it? Yeah. So let me maybe it will be easier for me to answer the question if I think about uh, my students and um, folks in the clinic setting. When I hear of microaggressions that take place, um, I had a Jewish student tell me another student walked up to her and said, I've never met a Jew before. Yes. Or often students will get, where are you, you know, where are you from? California. No, I mean, like, where are you really from? (laughs) Where are your ancestors from? And so, so it's hard for me to say that, you know, to minimize the impact that that has on my, on our, on our students. Okay. At the same time, when, and you tell me if this is more micro or macro, I, I, it's, it's, it's micro, but it certainly is reflecting a macro mindset, institutionalized mindsets. When clients will say to a trainee, are you, this happened to one of my students, are you documented? And they wanted to, to have another clinician as opposed to wow. the, the to this student. So that is reflecting, <laughs> yes, Rich, for, that to me is reflecting a larger yeah. message from our government that certain groups come here because they're rapists and murderers and criminals and they're coming here to the United States to do more of that. And well, you see, this yeah. has got this has gotten me all riled up. That question. <laughs> so but yes. <laughs> you get the point that the impact of both, it, it's difficult for me to distinguish and say one is greater than the other because we're seeing the trickle down of the macro into yeah. the micro. And we know. So I think it is also important for folks, um, and and for me that the answer, of course, is no, there's not really a difference. They operate potentially at different levels of consciousness. But, you know, I was in a, a presentation last summer talking about microaggressions and kind of one, like your students or other professionals, um, you know, residents, house officers, faculty who may kind of come and chat with you. Um, here's the thing. If I have to go talk to my therapist about it <laughs> and it's and, and that's maybe a week or two weeks later you yeah. can rest assured that I've been marinating and chewing on it for a, a period of time that and one that, incident that, that one is incident. concentration that's right. a, I believe that answer questions during rounds yeah that yes Yes. Um, You know, that's the kind of thing versus, hey, I, you know, my insurance may or may not, this is not the case for me, but my insurance may or may not pay for enough sessions for me to get in there and get there to talk to my therapist about what Dr. So-and-so did to me in front of my entire rotation squad (laughs) weeks ago. And so, you know, the access to a mental health professional to talk about it is one um, aspect of kind of that larger macro systemic issue and the, the micro is here's the issue itself that I need to go talk to about, about someone. And those two things often work negatively in concert um, to really kind of, here it is like two weeks later and I'm still thinking about something that Dr. Smith said to me yes. like that was a flippant comment. And, and I think that people need to understand that that's really, um, that those things actually sit with you. Um, and I think that we've all, whatever background we have, we've all had those moments where we're like, did that really happen? Yes. So that kind of brings us to the, so what can we do? So there's a growing number of you um, and your colleagues, mental health professionals um, at the colleges. And certainly we're in an environment now where accessibility of mental health professionals is not as bad as it used yeah. to be. It's better. It's not great, but it's um, but you've got things like Talkspace and you've got things like EAP programs and you have, you know, in-house professionals like yourself um, at many of the colleges now. So what 
are you, what can you do to kind of meet the needs of some of these populations who are already grinding it out in the program and in the college environment, but also dealing with all of this stuff? This is good. Um, one of the first things that came to mind, and, and this is not in an order of what's most or less, or less important, is that as much as possible that the um, mental health clinicians, embedded psychologists, embedded therapists in the VMCs, I had many students say to me, students of various uh, gender identities, non-traditional sexual orientation, that I felt I could come to you because I thought you would understand. Mm-hmm. And some of them hadn't had maybe met me during orientation or met me during a group talk, but some of them, I think it was just based on the fact that I was a woman, you know, that I am African-American, that my presentation was not always traditional, traditionally feminine. And so I, I, I think that some attention, and, and I'm sincerely asking for your guidance on this because it was a, it was more of an impression I got. It was nothing that I had put into my notes that before we even talk about what we do as embedded professionals, that I think some attention needs to be given to what our embedded professionals look like, what their experiences mm-hmm. are, what is it that they will communicate. So, so can you package that in a way yeah. that's controversial? <laughs> Controversy might be my middle name, but I will say that, so I think that there's a combination of things at work here because certainly my background is not mental health professional, but I do think that one, there is a yearning for the services and the interactions that you and your colleagues provide. So that's number one. So folks are seeking you out. But I think that specifically for underrepresented populations, my own experience as a woman, a woman of color, uh, I'd love to be able to say a woman of a certain age, but I think right. that, that that shelf life might Like I'm just trying to stretch it a few more years. Um, but I, I dye my hair in bright colors, which some folks kind of um, take as um, signaling the haircut that I have for some folks seems a little edgy and might be signaling that. And then of course, I'm the national diversity director. So that's a big kind of, you know, um, sign on my forehead, right? But I do think that there are populations of um, students and professionals that seek me out, not just because of my role, but because of the multiple identities that I kind of just walk around the world in. Um, And that there is an expectation of shared experience, whether not identity, not necessarily shared identity, not necessarily that the marginalization and or discrimination looks the same, but that there's a shared experience of having those experiences that folks seek out, again, some of those safe spaces kind of, and and you mentioned, the isolation or isolation with with kind of in-group behavior. There's that great book, um, you know, Why Do All of the Black Kids Sit at the Cafeteria Table Together? There's, there's certainly a lot of science around that. But I think that there's that in addition to being in visible roles where folks are seeking you out, I think that there are, for some of us with these multiple identities, that multiple marginalized, historically marginalized identities, that folks are seeking us out because of that shared ah, you might get whatever the cosmic it is. Yeah. Yes. So I think that that's important. Um, I also will say that I think that while most of us in the profession um, in these roles, not just mental health, but but d- diversity, but also in, in any number of roles, please know that that while folks like us are eager to make those connections because we also need shared experience, there is a burden that comes with that. <laughs> <laughs> of having to take care of a bunch of people. <laughs> yes, absolutely. 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 A burden and, and of course, the joy of fulfillment, the joy of, the joy of overcoming, the joy of inspiring. And I, and I want to say that there are, it is, it is more than gender identity, it's more than sexual orientation. As you mentioned earlier, there's ageism, there's ableism, there is discrimination based on religion, et cetera. And for the listeners, anyone who knows me, and I hope that we're communicating as well, that um, this is not only about women. This is not only about 
people of color, that um, we're very much concerned and committed to minimizing the unfortunate experiences of marginalized individuals and, yeah. and, and groups. And going back to um, your question about what can we do as educators and mental health providers? One, you know, let's let's do soul searching, listen to our own language. There are times I say things and I'm like, really? <laughs> I back three generations and pulled a term and used it that I didn't even recognize what the term meant. Yeah. I heard it as a child. And so for, for, for us to do some soul searching and just observation of our language, you know, and our attitudes and our beliefs about people and groups that are different from us. And um, and so that and that's for those of us who are practicing. I, I had a, a trans student tell me, you know, I didn't come back to you last year because during the interview, you conducted the interview as if I were if my identity was based on my anatomy, mm. you know, based on my sex determined birth. And I was so pleased that he came back to see me. He was a trans man, but he came back to see me because you know, it gave us an opportunity to dialogue about that and for him to express the the, the way that hurt him and, and mm-hmm. impacted him. But then, of course, it opened my eyes. And right. so, so, so that we look at ourselves, that we do self-study, that we, that we take courses. I've made it a part of my professional development. It wasn't my supervisor, but I chose to put on there that every year I engage in at least one course, one professional development course, uh, to provide more information to me about uh, a group or uh, a culture that I was less aware of or had less information on, that we do when we observe things professionally that indicate uh, that a stigma is in place, that we say something about it, yeah, and that and, and that we never feel that we know it all or that we have it all, that we don't um, become uh, professionals who rest on our laurels and. And, you know, use the same tool for every situation. So I, so in, in, I, I think I'm addressing both us as professionals yeah. and, and then also just the community, yeah. our, our, our listener, listening audience that may not be mental health professionals or educators, maybe clients that we take an inventory on the daily. Is there a way, is there something that I may have said or communicated? that reflected an ignorance or a prejudicial thought? And what can I do about that? And then, of course, at the macro level, you know, how can I be involved in social justice issues? Have enough time, take the time to participate in campus groups that are addressing these issues. Yeah. Don't be afraid to explore things. Don't. And, and to examine, I say that there is freedom and humility and that's saying, I don't have it all. I don't know it all. There's so yeah. much freedom there. Yeah. You know, we don't have to be afraid of making mistakes and doing the wrong thing. We can say, ooh, my bad. You know, I made an assumption. That assumption was incorrect. And, and that was hurtful yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's one other thing I think that we can all learn to do to help minimize impact or kind of course correct. And that is learning how to apologize. Yes. Right. Yes. Learning, learning that an apology isn't, I'm sorry that you were hurt by <laughs> yeah. this rando thing that happened <laughs> when it wasn't rando. <laughs> but no. it really is, I'm sorry that I did something, said something that really contributed to your discomfort or your your hurt, but really kind of owning that. And that's something that all of us um, uh, need to practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we live in an environment where you, you know, folks kind of send out the apology, um, what do they call it, an iOS press release <laughs> on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. And it's like, I'm, I'm sorry familiar. that you all were hurt. What is iOS? I'm not familiar with that. iOS is, is the Apple operating system, but okay. typically it's just kind of like, here's a picture of a, I'm sorry you were hurt because this random thing happened to you. And it was like, but it, but it wasn't random. Like you did <laughs> Yes. Yes. You did. <laughs> and it did impact me. Right. There, there, there can be no harm to bring up uh, um, 
the concern about suicide, we often people, there was the myth that if you talk about it, you'll encourage people to do it. Mm -hmm. Research has proven that is not the case. Likewise, with marginalization, discrimination, that addressing the fact that I made this faux pas or that I committed this error or I, I offended you, I hurt you, is not going to intensify the suffering. Right. Right. You know, bringing light to it. Dr. Greenhill, I made um, a short list here of things that we can do in this venture. And I wanted to share them with you. I just want yes. what can we do as house officers, as supervising faculty, as clinicians, et cetera? Listen to understand your colleagues' experience. Don't listen to fix. I'm a fixer. And even after practicing 25, 30 years, there are times when I have to, I say, sit on my warm-up, sit down, get warm. <laughs> want to fix it, want to intervene. You don't want there to be justice. But sit on your warm-up and listen. Be an active listener. And listen to how the person of concern is identifying themselves. Listen to how they're experiencing what is going on. Listen to what they may need from you or may not need from you. If you are listening again to fix something, then you're likely to miss something that is being communicated that would be helpful. I said that was a place to start. And then I said, if you witness discrimination in this list or other events that perpetuate marginalization, say something to indicate that it is not okay and look for ways to get involved. And so this is sort of a summary of what we talked about earlier in efforts to exterminate discrimination and marginalization. The we hit on this earlier. I think the worst thing that any of us could do is to pretend that it doesn't exist, to pretend that when it does exist, it does not impact our health, both physically, uh, you know, generally, and then specifically mental health, that it is not placing at greater risk an individual who may already be at risk. And we do know that marginalized groups. Uh, there is a fortitude and a resilience and, yeah. and an ability to resist that is glorious. Um, but that may be on an individual basis and may characterize some groups, but does not at uh, all suggest mm-hmm. that we should ignore or, or participate in something that is harmful just because, well, well they've survived this long right. or they've um, this far, well, look, they can go out and have a march, you know. Right. <laughs> um, they're trying to stay alive, and yeah. we all want to be a participant in that process of every individual being able to fully participate in their education, in their training, and in life. Yes. <laughs> I think that's great. Um, Yeah, I think that that's great. And I think that it's certainly meaningful, not only in the college environment, but just in the profession uh, more broadly and just just in life. I think that it is incumbent upon all of us to just kind of be mindful, aware, be reflective of kind of how how we go about our days. And please know, and I, I tell people all the time, and, um, that just because there are those of us in these positions where um, we have uh, a little bit of training or um, to to deal with it, that <laughs> yes. um, and we might even have an expert label, like that, that, no, we have to do this work as well. Um, there's always something new. There's always some thing that we're learning how to navigate. And I think that that's something that I think that that everyone can learn to benefit from, that 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 recognition of humanity and our individual humility and in how we engage one another. Um, be kind. Be kind. Yeah. Be kind. Be kind. Yes. Evolution. Um goes beyond simply Darwin's theory and there's constant change and we can do it in a way so that there are times that um, it may feel exhausting in the process of change. Um, but as we said earlier, it can also be rejuvenating. It can bring life. Um, anytime there is um, growth, there's going to be, you know, uh, um, uh, the, uh, there may be work associated with growth, but there's also the the joy that comes from, you know, the harmony of mm-hmm. staying tuned and staying in touch with the experiences of folks who are not like us. 
or who may be like us, but experiencing things differently than yeah. we are. Yeah, experiencing the world differently. So I think that that is a great place for us to end our chat on. I wanted to also wish uh, you and um, all of our colleagues and listeners a happy um, Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, reporting that during the month of July 2019. So this is our special summer bonus episode. Stay tuned because we will have some um, follow-up episodes kind of along these themes. In season five of the podcast, we'll be talking about bystander, the bystander effect and how to not <laughs> not do that. <laughs> yes. Do something, say something. We'll be talking about religious accommodation. We'll be talking about uh, all kinds of really cool things um, that are very specific in terms of here are things that you can actually do, not just exploring issues around diversity and inclusion, but really kind of here are things that you can do to make veterinary medical profession more inclusive um, of the diversity that certainly exists already, but also to be more welcoming of more diversity as we all continue to evolve. So Dr. Owens, thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. And I uh, look forward to um, listening to some of the future podcasts. They sound like they're going to be uh, enlightening. I, I hope oh, so. <laughs> I hope so. The work that's been done, I got to peruse your um, the Facebook page and the work that is being done is a good work. Oh, well, thank you so much. And that is um, such a great segue. So thank you again (laughs) for being on the show. If you're interested in more information about this topic and um, more broadly topics on diversity and inclusion on air, you can find the the show's Facebook page on Facebook, AAVMC, Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. You can also find the podcast on wherever you find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, all of those great places. Please be sure to like and subscribe to episodes. You can also find us on our distributor site on SoundCloud. Be sure to leave comments. Tell us what you think about the show. And so with that, I will bid uh, Dr. Owens adieu um, until another day where we can talk about all kinds of other fun things. (laughs) So again, thank you so much for being on the show and we will see you in season five. All right. Bye-bye. 